Welcome to this last edition of the Real Deal Podcast, the Wire Remixed episode, Season Two, Episode uh, Ten, Storm Warnings. Uh, as always, I'm joined by one Robert Sapp. How you doing, Mr. Sapp? Doing well, doing well. How you doing? Pretty good, pretty good. Um, on this Labor Day Monday, um, as it's you know the official end of summer, as a uh, I would assume that the entire country will be going back to school tomorrow. So good luck with that. Whether it's virtual or in building, be safe. Um, this episode was directed by Rob Bailey. Uh, it was ranked 43rd all time by a vulture. And uh, yeah, you know, vulture, vulture's not getting season two any love. So, you know, that's not that's not a surprise. And then and and we both know that they don't love Ziggy. At all, they have no love for Ziggy. So, you knew any any Ziggy laden episodes is not going to get be highly ranked by uh, Vulture, um, without question. So, you think about some themes and two characters. We had two characters in this episode who are going in opposite directions. Frankly, just lose control. They lose control. And we see the consequences of them, of their actions. Um, we'll see the consequences of their actions, but we'll see, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll flush out those two characters losing control in, in specific scenes and moments during the course of the episode. And of course, and, you know, talking about Ziggy and Presbyluski uh, over the course of this episode. The opening scene, speaking of uh, Pres, Presbyluski is in the office. Um, <clears throat> puts puts on the Johnny Cash walk the line as he you know looks over the evidence board, and then we see the rest of the detail in action, putting things in motion. We see trackers, car trackers going on the cars of uh, the madam who works for the uh, Greek. Um, we see Double G and Eton's uh, Eton's car getting the tracker as well. So we really get to, in this opening montage, so it's about roughly two minutes, we see all the details, some of the details, a lot of the details, hard work paying off as uh, we, you know, come, you know, as we only have like three episodes left in this season, as we see our things uh, make it, you know, we see what they're doing and what they what how, how, how the investigation is progressing. And we see Car we see for the first time, we see President Lewski, and we'll see it. We'll see it uh, a couple more times. You know, kind of have his moment of of trying to take all this in in terms of how big this case is and how important this case is. And I believe at the end of the montage, he says, uh, "Fuck, fucking a." I think he said that's that's what I think he said at the end of the montage. Um, in Prez, this is right in Prez's wheelhouse. He is in his utopia. He loves, you know, he loves the minutia of police work. He loves, the, he loves the detail. So this is right up his alley. Uh, so that was the opening. That was the opening scene, the uh, montage. A rare, uh, not too many up until this point, not too many opening montages in this show. Normally the montages are at the end of the season um, for the most part. So you saw a rare opening montage to start off the show. A lot going on in this like two minutes or so, a little bit low. It was a little two minutes long. What were your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I, I thought like a lot like you, 
like the opening montage is something different. Like not it doesn't happen a lot. It definitely had happened up until this point that I could think of. Um and so um you knew it was unique in that way. Uh and then also I thought like Prez like like as he was looking at that board, he kind of represented the audience, right? Like we had gone through this whole entire thing with with um you know, the entire police department who had set the whole thing up and to kind of like look at it from afar, like over these past, you know, 10 episodes, nine full episodes, you know, this whole thing has been built out like the entire scope of it. So it was also, I think, like the show just kind of like acknowledging itself and saying like, look at all the work that we had done. Yeah. Yeah, a lot that uh, a busy evidence board, uh, no question about it. Um, so we go to Bodie at the Towers. Now, unlike the last time we saw Bodie at the Towers, of course he got he has to, they have they have a new product, Prop Joe product, which is of course um, that straight off the boat, hundred percent pure, and and business is flourishing. Like the Towers are as packed as we've ever as we've ever seen the Towers. Bodie, you know, of course, is excited. And then Stringer pulls up, tells them to allow Eastside, the Eastside dealers to also sell in the towers, tells, gives them specific instructions on which towers they are, that they're allowed to sell in. Bodie, of course, Bodie doesn't know anything about the deal that's been cut with Prop Joe and the details behind that. He's not that high on the totem pole. So Bodie completely is confused. We know West Side, East Side is a rivalry. We know they don't like each other. Um, you know, going back way back when, and we'll talk. You know, we'll talk more about that later on in the episode. Um, so at first, Bodie thought was like was thinking that Stringer's telling them, you know, fuck them up. If you know if they come on, if they you know if they come on, they try to come near the towers. Of course, Stringer completely told, tells them the opposite. Stringer says, hey. You know, they you know they are they're allowed to sell here. Anything, any beef, any shit that that goes down, you're going you're going to report directly to me about. And then of course Bodie makes a connection when Stringer says when he mentions you know when Stringer, he walks back up to Stringer says it don't you know it don't make sense. And then he says says to Bodie, you like the new product? You like the new product we have? And he says, basically says, now that now that tells him, ask him, now does it make sense? And you know, Bodie makes a connection at that point, but still is, you know, still is confused from the standpoint, or still is not happy from the standpoint that they're selling, uh, that they're allowing East Side, East Side deals are allowed to sell in the towers. Um, what were your thoughts on, on, on this exchange between Stringer and Bodie and this and now Eastside selling officially selling in the towers? Yeah, this is this is you know Stringer's new kind of way. This is this is his first edict of of his rule, so to speak. And so um, he's kind of coming down into the the pit, into down down to the where the common folk are to make sure like all his directions are being followed to the absolute fullest. Like he know this is it. Like something that soldiers is really going to be able to understand, but um. That's why he's down there to make sure that no matter if you understand or not, this is going to happen. Yeah, that's a good point because uh, Stringer rarely makes 
appearances like in the pit or in the towers. And like when he does, it's it's, it's for it's something important. Yep. For him to make that appearance show, shows you how you know just how you know just how important uh, that this transaction is and how important that this deal is uh, for him to make that type of appearance. I, I thought I immediately thought about Avon. I was like, what would what would Avon do? And we'll see what Avon does. But what would Avon, what was what would Avon's reaction be if he saw this? Like <laughs> he got out the car. <laughs> if Avon was was out of jail and saw this, it's just I that's what I thought about when I when I saw this. Like he like Avon would just, you know, I'd lose his, you know, flip out. But um, because we'll see. How this transpires over the course of, of the episode. But I, when, I, when I first saw this, I, I immediately thought thought about um, Avon. Um, we see the detail. We go back to the detail. We see where the main people are going through, are going to, from uh, in terms of the trackers on their cars. We we'll see with their locations and what have you. The details, of course, is has using. They've gotten. You know, they they're using the FBI's equipment um, in terms of these trackers. So they're on they're on good footing with the FBI at this point, um, as we see, you know, the trackers of the Madam Double G, and they're trying to make connections to the to the locations. Um, what were your thoughts on on them tracking on, on them having trackers on these cars and then them using the, the FBI's equipment? Yeah, I mean, uh, at first glance, the impression is, oh, they are over them, and they are, but. Um, I think as we'll see through the episode, but even right now, it's like everybody is on a piece of the Greeks, but nobody's putting the full picture together. Yeah. Yeah. So you had that going on. Uh, then we move on to uh, Frank, Ott, and Horseface. Now, remember, this has been an ongoing thing in regards to Frank um, and his run for the Treasury. Frank is running for the treasury. Ott, Ott is, of course, it's Ott's turn to run. Ott basically tells Frank, like, don't even try to hide the fact that you're running. You might as well just, just, just hang up the sign. Just put up the signs. I know you're, I know you're running against me for treasurer, even though it's Ott's turn. Uh, it's Ott's turn to run. Um, so Frank hangs up his, his picture of himself. Uh, Frank, of course, says, uh, you know, it's not about me. It's not. It's not about me. It's for the. You know, it's for the checkers. It's for for the union. Um, says it's don't. You know, don't take it personal, kiddo. Something to that extent. Um, then he says. Then when Ott leaves, um, Horseface gives him a, a, a you know a peculiar look, and he says to Horseface, "What do you want me to do? Tell him about where the money comes from." And then the scene ends. Uh, typical Frank. You know, saying. You know saying it's not about me, it's about the union, and, you know, trying to, you know, just make excuses for why he's doing what he's doing. Um, what were your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, pretty much that was the entire scene until that end. At the very end, he finally gave a little bit of truth um, in, in that statement. It's not about the union, not about yada, yada, everything that he needs to get done. He said it right there. Um, what do you want me to tell them where the money's coming from? Yeah. Yeah. So you have Valchek 
and the FBI. So Valchek is at his is at his boiling point. Uh, he's had him. We saw him snap. We saw him snap in the office in a meeting with Daniels and and uh, Burrell and and, and, and Rawls in the last episode. Um, so he decides to bring in the FBI. He shows them the missing van. He tells them about, you know, tells them about the Sabaka case. Um, he's pulling out all the stops. And, and, you know, he, of course, he's obsessed with, with Frank Sabaka. He wants, you know, he, he still holds that grudge and still, you know, wants, he wants Frank Sabaka. Doesn't even, you know, of course, he's not even looking at the entirety of the case. Uh, and doesn't, you know, recognize, doesn't even care that the case, even, even though that the case is bigger than Sabaka, not even worried about that. He's focused on specifically Frank Sabaka. What was your thoughts? Uh, he tells them that the missing van, that the van was missing, but he didn't report it because it didn't, it didn't it would have reflected bad on the department, which is him. It would reflected bad on him. So he gets the FBI involved from that standpoint. What were your thoughts on Valchek pulling these strings and, and getting the FBI in, involved in this? My, I mean, my thoughts is, is uh, kind of like what we talked about at the very beginning of the season. It's just like, um, you know, uh, being the engineer of your own self-destruction, right? Like, uh, um, Sabaka, uh, Frank being, being who he is, stole the van and then kept poking the bear, poking the lion, so to speak, um, with the picture being sent every single time. And so what this scene said to me is, um, because of that, Valchek has never been able to like calm down off of it, and so he's willing to get everybody involved. It doesn't matter. FBI, DEA, the presidency, whoever he has to do to get Frank Savaka. Yeah. So, yeah, he's, I mean, you know, at this point, he's just like, he's, especially he was pissed off, especially at that last meeting they had um, when Perlman Burrell basically basically ignored him from a stand, didn't ignore him, but basically said like the case is bigger than Frank Zabaka, and that just you know that set him that completely set him off. Uh, so that added to the fact that you know added to the reason to the fact that he doesn't like Zabaka anyway um, from that standpoint. So you have Bodie and Cheese. So of course we know Cheese is you know is with Prop Joe. They are in competition for for fiends that at the towers. Bodie does a deal with with Bubbles, to, and he out you know he outwits the, the East Side drug dealer from that standpoint. And gets the gets the deal, gets the uh, and gets uh, Bubbles to buy buy his product. The dude goes back to Cheese to let Cheese know, and then Cheese basically says, you know, a West Side dude can uh, can can make a drug sale without put without sticking a gun in somebody's face, and then you have Cheese and Bodie kind of going back and forth. Uh, going back and forth on the uh, tower territory. Um, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, good, good interaction. Um, kind of two, two new crews to the uh, top lieutenants. Uh, kind of going back and forth. Just a really good scene. Yeah, yeah. He, uh, you know, Bodie. Yeah, Bodie basically is saying, you know, even though he he doesn't like East Side, he's saying, well, you know, we can't. We can't go at y'all one way. Then we don't. Then we're going to definitely try to out. Definitely going to outsell y'all while we're on while we're on the tower in the towers. Um, 
Yeah, Prez, Freeman, Herc, and Carver bringing in equipment. Yeah, Herc and Carver bringing in equipment inside the detail. Um, they now Prez and Freeman are doing some work on the computer, and they bear, bear they are barely acknowledging Herc and Carver at all, especially Freeman. Like they were just completely focusing on what they're doing. Uh, tell Herc and Carver. You know, Freeman tells Hurricane Carver, easy, you know, take it easy with this equipment. It's, it's you know, it's fragile. And uh, basically, uh, Freeman sends them back, sends them out to do some uh, some other work as far as, uh, as far as some other parts of the case. Again, a continuing theme where Hurricane Carver, you know, just don't realize the value of the casework that they're doing. They continue to feel undervalued. Um, they continue to feel undervalued by the detail overall. Then you have the FBI come in, comes in, comes in and meets with, um, yeah, the FBI comes in and meets with Daniels and then Daniel, poor Daniels can get out a, a word out of his mouth. He had a surprised look on his face, not a, certainly not expecting that visit by the FBI. Uh, what were your thoughts on this scene? Yeah. Um, yeah, that was a lot. Uh, so the beginning of that scene was what? When Hurricane Carver was being bringing in some equipment. Yeah, 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 yeah. And uh, I was just going to echo exactly what you were saying about um, how this is kind of par for the course for them, always feeling underappreciated and never actually seeing the value in the police work that they're being asked to do. Um, so I was just going to 100% agree with that. As far as the FBI coming in there, um, it's, it's interesting because uh, the detail built has built up most of the case, and now the FBI is coming in. And so you would think they, when the FBI is coming in, it's going to increase the level of uh, efficiency uh, or of effectiveness is probably a better word of the detail, and um, you know we'll we'll see uh, from this from this point on. But uh, yeah, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll definitely see how that plays out. Um, we go to Butchie's bar. So Butchie, you have Butchie's bar. You have Omar comes in later. Before Omar comes in, you have Butchie talking to a couple of his patrons about. Uh, Frank Matthews, who was a, a legendary drug dealer, who he said, you know, brought some of that French connection, uh, heroin down from uh, New York, and uh, you know, was uh, you know became got rich off that. Um, basically, talking going back to the East Side West Side, and I, I brought this up earlier about how far back East Side West Side rivalry went in Baltimore, and it, it goes back, you know, to to that time. Uh, with Frank Matthews, and even so, you have Butchie giving you a little history lesson on the drug trade in Baltimore. Then you have Omar comes in, and as soon as Omar comes in, he greets the dog. Um, the patrons look at Omar as to say, you know, not to be some, you know, somebody who obviously has, they know his reputation, so they don't even they take a quick glance and then go back to you know drinking their beers. And then you have oh, then you have Omar give Butchie some money for his bank. You find out that Omar, that Butchie, that Omar and Butchie are 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 very tight. Find out that Butchie is Omar's bank. Uh, Butchie encourages Omar to back off. 
consider how much money he's made over the over the years. And Omar basically, you know, just shuns him aside and says, you know, back off to what? Um, so you had some more uh, flushing out the Butchie and Omar relationship and, and a little bit more some information on, you know, Butchie's kind of like his role and his, uh, you know, his knowledge of, of what, of the history of, of what was going on in Baltimore and the drug trade. So I thought it was, I, I enjoyed this scene from that standpoint. What were your thoughts? Yeah, it was great character development. Um, giving us uh, kind of like an idea of um, how valuable Butchie is without like going into a lot of exposition about it. Um, just by him being able to talk about like the depth of knowledge that he has about the city. And for, you know, we know Omar, there's very few people Omar's going to listen to and for have him have this interaction with Butchie that is uh, almost mentor-mentee type of, type of deal. Like, we know he's keeping his bank for him, so that's a big deal. Um, so, anyways, seeing that level of trust, you know that Butchie's a big deal already. Yeah, no question about it. So, we go to Ziggy and Johnny 50 loading the stolen cars. And making it seem like it was a, it was done. It making it seem like um, that it was not connected to the union. Um, Ziggy, of course, is being typical Ziggy from the standpoint of, you know, you're supposed to be. It's at night. Johnny Fifty's cutting open, you know, using the bob cutters to cut open the gate. He's doing his job. Ziggy's playing. It has is driving the car and playing the music as loud as you can possibly be. Johnny Fifty, of course, is nervous, telling Ziggy turn the music down. Ziggy, of course, says the epigraph of of of, of the uh, of the episode, and then uh, we see the, we proceed to see how this um, how Ziggy and uh, Johnny Fifty pulled this pulled this off just brilliantly. I mean, in terms of the plan, we talked about that last episode how how well thought out of a plan it was. Uh, what were your thoughts? Yeah, um, you, you you can see what's going on with Ziggy when met with success, he's going to meet it with ultimate self-destruction. Like he's going to go into overdrive, like how, however much success he's feeling. And so you starting to get a feeling for that in, in this scene right here, which is kind of setting up for, for a little bit later. But um, other than that, yeah, well executed playing by Ziggy. And the epigraph, I, I felt I forgot to mention at the top of the show uh, podcast. The, epi, the epigraph was "It pays to go with the union every time." That was by Ziggy, and of course he's talking about using Johnny Fifty as as as, as somebody who uh, to do the job with. So that was the epigraph of the episode uh, by by the <clears throat> by Ziggy. So you have Amy and Nick. You have. Uh, well, you have Amy, who sees, uh, who's in the basement of um, his uh, mother, his, his parents' house. And while doing laundry, she sees a whole wad of money. Uh, she sees a whole wad of money um, that's, that's, that was somewhat hidden, but not uh, clearly not hidden well enough for her not to see it. 
this will be a setup for another uh, a scene coming up. Well, you have, you have any thoughts on this? Yeah, set up, set up. Kima, you see, Kima and Cheryl. Um, Kima comes in. Cheryl, of course, is pregnant, and there is clearly a disconnect, um, not from Cheryl but from Kima, towards uh, the pregnancy. Like Kima. To me, during that scene, was showing no excitement at all about the pregnancy. Uh, matter of fact, Hema was complaining about you know her, her working overtime and you know she's doing these she's doing extra hours because initially she came in and said that they, you know she uh, was complaining about her not going Cheryl not going grocery shopping and said you know said you know you couldn't lift a bag you used to, you're at that point where you can't lift a bag and you see Cheryl you know show her show her stomach. And then that, and then you can, I mean, you can see again, you can see where this is going in terms of their relationship. Wow, Kima, excuse me, how Kima uh, is just really not feeling, feeling that parenthood thing that's, that's on the horizon. What were your thoughts? Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Like this is, this is um, kind of showing the, the, uh, showing like what it's like after the decision is made, the consequences of that. And so, um, you know, they've been pretty consistent. We know what Cheryl wants. We know what Kima wants. And we know it's not the same thing. Right. No, they, they don't want the same thing. And they both, <laughs> the thing about these two, and I just thought about this, they both did the same thing to each other. Like, when Kima decided to go back to the police force, Cheryl really didn't have a say in it. And when Cheryl's deciding with this one to have a baby, one to have a baby, is Kima really didn't have a say in it. So it's kind of like they both did the same thing to each other uh, from that standpoint. Yep. So you had Amy and Nick uh, getting back to the scene that we did, that we uh, that we just talked about a couple minutes ago. They they're discussing. They are talking about the money that Amy found. He explains. Um, he explains where it came where it came from. Then he then even though he explains where it came from, he tells her that it was for that he's you know that you know that's, that he's buying it, that he has it, that it's for her, it's for a new place. So he kinda he kinda uh sells it on that. Um doesn't give her the full story of where it came from, gives her, you know, part of you know, gives her part of the story, mostly a lie. She at the end of the scene does not not believing, just you know, didn't look convinced at all. Even despite the fact that he told her that it was for you know, it was for purchase, help purchase a bigger place and what have you. She she is very. She doesn't know exactly. Of course, she doesn't know exactly what was all was going on. But she did not look happy at the she she at the end of that particular scene. Um, what were your thoughts? Yeah, this is um, more setup. This is more setup. Cheese and Brother Muzon. So we saw Brother Muzon come in at the end of last episode. Um, Cheese is, of course, selling, you know, at the towers. Without selling, Cheese, of course, is you know selling, dealing drugs at the towers. They had, had the deal all deals all laid out. Brother Muzon comes in with Lamar, uh, his assistant. Okay, he's not his bodyguard; he's an assistant, <laughs> and and. She's, of course, has no clue who Brother Muzon is. Um, 
Brother Muzon says, I'm basically says, I'm par- and I'm paraphrasing this. I'm assuming that you're not with the Barksdales. Um, do you know the do you know the Barksdale's name? He says, Yes. Uh, I know that name, that name rings out. So much so his mind. And then he gets so he gives a brother who's on his name. And then he basically tells Brother Muzon. Brother Muzon basically says, you need to take your ass. If you, you don't work for the Barksdale, so you need to take your ass across the street, uh, across Charles Street where you belong. And then one of Cheese's boys was about to jump, was about to jump. Then Cheese stopped, stopped his boy and says, you know, he doesn't know what this is. He doesn't know what this is. And then Cheese proceeds to try to, to try to punch Brother Muzon. Before you know it, Brother Muzon puts one in his shoulder and then proceeds to tell him that was just basically a warning shot. The next one will kill you. And Cheese walks away, and Brian Muzon says, good day to you, sir. Um, just a brilliant scene. Like, so much, like, <clears throat> this dude tell, is telling you what's in the chamber afterwards. So he's, it's clear that he makes his own, you know, he's, that he's trained. He's a, this guy's a trained killer. He, you know, making, making his own bullets, basically. And the first one, what do you say? Pellets in plastic. So the first one. So he he went into that. He went into that, knowing that he's probably going to have to shoot this dude. That he's going to, have to probably shoot somebody. Like and ready to shoot somebody. <laughs> There's so much going on. And see what were, like what we and, and by the way, Bubbles was watching the whole thing as, as usual. Bubbles sees everything. Everything. We pops off Bubbles. Bubbles was like the Inquirer before the Inquirer. Bubbles or uh, TMZ before TMZ. Bubble sees everything as it's happening. Um, what were your thoughts on the real introduction to one brother Muzon? Yeah, that's a perfect way of saying it. This is this is the for real introduction of Brother Muzon. Um, you saw how fierce and ferocious he was. Um I when I was watching it this time, I was looking at it and I was like, man, like this is how you build like another iconic character. Like this is how you do it. Um, yeah, just just fantastic writing, fantastic acting, all around. This is this is how you create a classic character. Yeah, yeah. So now we all know that Brother Muzon was sent down, hired by Avon from New York and this was the result of, of you know or Stringer you know saying he needed some muscle and Stringer clearly had clearly had underestimated how quick Bouzon would get there um so this like so like right now so so Avon so I I'm assuming that word must have got back to Avon that Esai was in the towers because I like they didn't have that because clearly Stringer hasn't told hasn't told Avon Stringer hasn't told uh, Avon about the deal about them doing the deal and about the fact that Esai was selling in the towers so somehow word must have got back to Avon that they were selling in the ta- that they were selling in the towers or he just automatically was told to go. 
He probably would. I'm assuming that he probably would automatically be told to go to the towers. Yeah, yeah, I agree with that. Yeah. Either way, this 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 was a product of Stringer miscalculating a message that went to Avon, a message through Brianna. Because remember, it was through it was through Brianna at first. Brianna was uh, gave Avon the message through Stringer. So this went horribly wrong for the Stringer from that standpoint. Um, you had the FBI, Daniels and Perlman, they discussed the case. They agreed to um, work together. Of course, we, they start, they bring it in. FBI has extra manpower, extra, you know, advanced equipment that, of course, that, that you know, that Baltimore, that they, you know, the Western or there that they just don't have in the, in the Baltimore County or Baltimore City. Uh, so, you, you know, we talked about that earlier. Um, I, you know, I, when I first saw this back way back when, I don't, I don't, I did not remember this scene in particular, but it seems like they were, it seems like they were like, we're, in, we're on the same page. Did you get that sense in this scene? Uh, that who was, who was on the same page? The FBI and Daniels and Perlman when they made the agreement to work together. Like, yeah, yeah, I would agree with that. I would agree with that. Um, they saw the benefit of being able to use the FBI's reach and their technology. Yes. So we go to Prop Joe and Cheese. Of course, they discussed the shooting by uh, Brother Luzon. Uh, Cheese, of course, wants to get revenge, but Prop Joe knows. Prop Joe does know of Muzon. He knows Muzon is a, you know, is a cold-hearted killer, and you know tells tells Cheese like, look, a lot of dudes went up against Muzon and ended up in six feet under. Um, the bottom line is, the bottom line is he, that he tells Cheese is, look, you know, what's going to happen? You know, they are hurting more than we are because we got the good product. So, you know, let's let that play out. And then he, at the end of the scene, he says he um, he do he, he does know somebody who would be basically crazy enough to go after Muzon. And of course, we know that someone is one Omar Little. Uh, this is of course Prop Joe being Prop Joe, and we'll we'll see how this plays out. But this is this is how Prop Joe thinks um, when situations occur. Uh, what were your thoughts? Yeah, this is this is one of those rare times where I can't separate two things out because the idea is so um, uh, powerful in my mind. And so, um, so this is the beginning, right? This is the genesis of what we're going to see next season. And so as this was going, as this was happening at this time, I was just like, I really want to pay attention to how this plot unfolds between Prop Joe, uh, Omar, Stringer, and Brother Muzon. Like how how this goes around because Prop Joe firmly plants the seed that this is his idea, but we know who's going to end up getting blamed for it. Right, and I've never actually tracked how that happened. And so I'm like, this time around, I really want to track how that's going, how that's going down. Otherwise, of course, brilliant scene, brilliant scene. 
So we had, uh, <clears throat> yeah, we had the FBI in detail come meet up with each other. The FBI, they do that, you know, that comedic standoff where they come into the office, kind of like a Western. You have Bulk and uh, Bulk and Freeman saying, basically saying, I'll, I'll take the one center mass. And then they meet up, crack jokes with Fitzhugh and a couple of, of, of the FBI as they bring in their equipment um, to the details office. So you had like a, basically you had a full house. I mean, yeah, there's a number of people in that office between the FBI and also the details people as well. Um, now we get to the big one, uh, <clears throat> Double G and Ziggy. So Ziggy goes to Double G, he discusses the cars. He says, he basically says, I did everything you told me to do. Um, tells him that he has one outside he has one outside the uh store which core double g is not happy about uh at all and then he uh you see double g pull out a a envelope uh with the money in it and he gives it to ziggy ziggy of course sees that the envelope envelope is light and you know Ziggy says, hey, we had a deal. Uh, what's going on? And then uh, Double G said, you know, today, you know, yes, last week it was 20%. This week it's 10%. But then, you know, basically says that's still, that's still some good money for you and a few hours of work. And then Ziggy just loses it, snap, insults him, calls him a Greek cut. And he, uh, Double G, of course, snaps right back punches Ziggy in the chest, beats him up, throws him out of the store. And then we see Ziggy go get his gun, shoot the worker, the other, the young worker in, in, in the stomach, doesn't kill him. And then he shoots, shoots Double G multiple times, um, multiple times and, and, and ends his life with a shot in the face as uh, Double G begged for his life with that last shot. Ziggy returns to his car um, completely in a daze and just sits in the car and you see the uh, parking meter bell go off. He, I mean, say, he must have been sitting there for not hours, but enough, at least a half hour seemed like. Um, as we see the parking meter go off, uh, he breaks down in the car. He leaves the money with the young boy uh, that he shot the young worker and uh, we see him again, just sit in the car, break down, you know, basically decompress and think about what he's done. Um, very powerful scene, a culmination of, you know, Ziggy being tired, getting tired, being tired of just getting pushed around, not take it seriously. And we saw what the results of it was. Uh, what were your thoughts on this scene? Yeah, I I don't have enough thoughts about this scene. It's a combination of a fantastic character arc um, over this entire season, taking us from a character who um, we didn't know at all, and then who the only thing that we knew about him was he was a lavish stock to a deeper character who has... Uh, relationship issues with his father and issues with his family. 
um, and then um, to put us in this situation where, um, you know, in, in this, this moment where, you know, Ziggy's doing a horrible act, like you actually feel for him. Um, and it was interesting the words that you used. Um, you were saying it how how it was, and you were like, and Ziggy goes back to his car and gets gets the gun. And spoiler alert, I mean that the actor who played Ziggy is my MVP for this episode, and it's not even close. Um, MVP acting for this entire season. Yeah, he did. He did stand. It was D'Angelo. I mean, like this. This is Ziggy. Ziggy's the, the act. Yeah, the actor did Ziggy. These next two episodes, he's he's a force. He's a force. Um, and the reason I said it's interesting from the wording is because um, the scene to me that sticks out about Ziggy, the Ziggy character, the Ziggy arc, everything Ziggy is this scene right here when he goes back and has the money in his hand. And he's in the he goes he after like he gets pushed by um double G, the camera kinda like pans um from double G. Double G pushes him, Ziggy's walking to the car, the camera pans out after him, Ziggy's already in the car and he's just kinda like having that silent rage moment, right? Like he's in the car, he's shaking the wheel, and he's just like he's obviously like screaming and upset, but you don't see the audible. You don't hear the audible. All you see is the actor's face and the anguish in his face and the turmoil in his face and the heartbreak and just the the word that you used that was perfect was just tired, just tired. And that was the moment of someone snapping, um, which is bone chilling to watch in one instance and also um, amazing to watch and I can't even imagine where the actor had to go to get to that to get to that space. Pretty, but, a dark, pretty dark place that you got yeah, to go. Yeah, I can only imagine. <laughs> because then when he comes in, then you see the dead like a resolution of just like just go cold and dead and like shoots the boy without any hesitation. Like he's not thinking about anything, sees double G, shoots him, shoots him. Again, I appreciate how the wire does it play up the violence it's just the right amount of violence to be cold and calculated and horrible at the exact same time um and then you described it perfectly about ziggy going back out to the car just like kind of like that emotional breakdown the only thing that i would say is i don't think that's over 30 minutes i actually think the power of this scene is that all that is happening in real time he goes out he's trying to light the cigarette he's hearing the alarm happen when he pulled up he never paid anything in the right. yeah that's true yeah. here's the ding of that so all that is happening in real real time very um breaking bad ish um a show that will come decades later um or a decade later um and so um just like just like the intensity of that moment the intensity that that um that the actor uh that ziggy just just goes through is is off the charts. This is again why I say this season is fantastic because it can create a uh, character arc this powerful and this is why this character's arc is this powerful in the season because what he does right now, what Ziggy does 
kind of is the genesis of the unraveling of everything for everybody. So this character, Ziggy, was the the kind of the emotional underpinning of this season and quite literally as a character the um the focal point of the season the linchpin of the season because what he does here at this moment sets off a chain of events that the most powerful most charismatic most thoughtful people in this show have been putting together over a long period of time, his action right here impacts all of that. Yeah, one of the most, not, I mean, not only one of the most well-acted scenes of season two, frankly, one of the most well-acted scenes of the entire series, to be honest. That, that season yep. in that scene, I mean, it's, he, you know, from start to finish, I mean, it's just, you know, because remember, at the beginning of the scene, you know, he came in, he, he was, you know, he was happy. He was jovial. He's like, yeah, you know, I got everything you wanted, Chief. And, you know, it, it, was, it, was, it was all good. But where he went from there to towards the end of the scene, just like, it, it's really pretty, pretty inc- incredible that range of action it takes place in one scene. Um, so you have uh, Pop, Minoki, and Bunk, along with Minoki's old Marine Marine partner, Marine boat partner on a boat that's been set up for a further scene. So that's, they, they, didn't, they didn't show too much of this scene. So this, we'll, we'll, you know, we'll talk more later about this scene. Really quickly, since, since you're right, this is a setup scene. I just want to go back as you were talking about um, it being one of the top acted scenes in the uh, series. Um, in my head, I was thinking about it. I was just like, yeah, he's absolutely right. Um, up up until this point, there's only one other scene I would compare, and that would be the D'Angelo scenes um, to, to up, up, until this, up until this point. And thinking about uh, what's coming ahead, then there's only one other scene that I would put put with with those two scenes um uh what's going to happen at the end of season three and um and with the d'angelo and then what's going to happen in season three i was thinking in my head as you were talking those take over a season for them to build the character arc to get to that end point that creates that great drama with the ziggy character they did it in 10 episodes with this character Right. And so like that makes it even more impactful because of the amount of time. The only things that will compare to this will be season four. And we're gonna set season season four is just gonna be a master class of everything. They put everything together in season four. But up until that point in time, in terms of a character we just meet in season in the beginning of the season to his character arc ending in that very same season. Nothing more powerful than Ziggy. No, yeah, and I'm, I'm as you were talking, I was just thinking about some of the other powerful acting episodes, scenes, not episodes in, in their entirety, but scenes. And yeah, a lot of scenes that came to my mind are scenes are scenes that were that were years mm-hmm. and seasons in terms of build up. Yep. So yeah, 
Yeah. Maybe with the quiet exception, with the exception of season three, which is a DEM type blood. Yeah. 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 Um, so you have. Yeah. Uh, spoiler, spoiler alert season four is really yeah. good. Season four is incredible. It's really good. <laughs> it is incredible. <laughs> yeah. Prop Joe and Butchie. So Prop Joe goes to Butchie's bar and shot. Man, I, first of all, before even they started talking, the first thing I looked at was those wings. And that hot, those wings. Yeah, ain't no wings like that. No. <laughs> I was like, man, yeah. like, like Butchie's wings. Yeah. Like, so, of course, Prop Joe, of course, Prop Joe had to give him some wings before he could, you know, before he could get into the conversation. Um, so, then Prop Joe and Butchie are talking. That's what it was like in the early 2000s. Yeah. Yeah. We, we, your, yeah, we remember, yeah. the corner store to get some yeah. good wings. That's, what, that's, what, that's how it was. That's how that used to be. Mambo sauce and you and there you go. Come on yeah. now. Yeah. So Butchie and Prop Joe are talking. Um Butchie tells Stringer that um excuse me, no, Prop Joe tells Butchie that Stringer wants to parlay uh with Omar. Butchie, of course, doesn't trust it because he doesn't trust the Barksdales. So you remember now getting back to early in the season. Yes, early in the season because I mean I forgot how long the season has been. You remember Butchie was dealing with Stringer with the whole trying to get Avon's sentence cut and set up something. So he he said Butchie basically said, "Look, back then, then when they asked for help, it made sense. This time, it doesn't make sense." So Butch, listen, Butchie's the OG. He's been the game, but he, he's no fool by any stretch of imagination. He senses that something's just not that's something's not right with this whole with this situation, even though it's not completely been flushed out yet. Um, and that's why he says at the end of the scene, when Prop Joe says, "Hey, I can promise, I can promise security," but she's like, "Nah, nah, I got my nephew. My nephew will handle security." So it this was a I love the scene because you saw two. Old chess masters, old heads that's been in the game a long time that, that can't they are hard to bullshit each other, each other, or almost impossible for them to bullshit each other. You saw them kind of going back and forth, trying to read each other, trying to fill each other out, especially from Bushy's perspective. He doesn't trust it. Uh, what were your thoughts? Yeah, all of that is 100% accurate, but then again, Surreal, I'm asking. Right now, and this this is the thought process. I mean, this is all about setting Omar up. And so, how, like, how deep is, like, like why, why would Butchie accept any part of this? Like, he knows the Barksdales, he knows Stringer. And so, like, like, this is, this is, I'm keeping my eye on, yeah, seems like this yeah. really closely, and I'm really going to connect all the dots this time. Yeah, that's yeah. what that's what that's what I'm doing because this there's a lot that's going on in this scene, um, and I need to be able to fill in the dots as it's happening without having to worry about 
spoiling something that's coming coming ahead. But those are just the thoughts that go through my mind right now. Yeah, yeah. So you have um, <clears throat> Ziggy and Landsman um, in the police in, 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 in the interrogation room. Um, Ziggy signs a confession statement. Um, I think Landsman even gave him a cigarette. Um, too during during this whole sequence, um, he changes Ziggy changes what he said at the end at the end of the confession statement about what double about what double G said to him before he shot him. So he changed that piece of information. Uh, says that double G um, said, "Please don't, please don't," and then he shot him. Um, very. Uh, you know, it was the thing that stood out to me was just how calm everybody was in this, in this interrogation room. I mean, Lansman was very calm. It was very easy going, and it, you know, in contrast to in contrast to some other interrogation room scenes that we've seen up until this point. So I I, I think that they the show doesn't do anything by accident. Uh, you know. Intentionally show you the intentionally show you the difference between when a uh, uh, a white man is in you know being interrogated and is in you know has just shot somebody versus you know uh, versus blacks because uh, it was very the whole exchange between Landsman and Ziggy was just you know it was calm from from the first from the beginning of the scene towards the end of the scene. What were your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, like, yeah, I, so I, here's the, here's the aspect I will take it from. Um, I'm giving the, again, the actor who plays Ziggy all the credit in the world on this one, because um, the thing that really stuck out to me was the contrast of how, um, how hyper emotional he was throughout the whole thing with Double G. Like he took us on the range of emotions, and right. this, this one, I think, what you're pointing out is was devoid of any emotions. And so, just kind of like how you said, like he was tired, like in the the scenes with Double G and everything that happened out of that one. The way that I would describe the way that he chose to play this was like exhaustion, and that exhaustion that comes out on the other end of when you go red, when you go to that space where you're, you can't even think um, in terms of like the anger and the desperation and the everything that he was throwing into the other scene. And so the contrast was just like, like off the, like off the charts and really stuck out to me. So we have um, Herc and Carver. Um, they are looking, they are casing, of course, casing outside the, the Greeks warehouse, uh, they let they let uh, let Daniels know that it's quiet for now. Um, we'll see how that plays, you know, we'll see how that plays out over the course of the episode. Um, you see McNulty and Bunk, and of course, McNulty's old partner on the boat, um, trying to, uh, waiting for Spiros and Eton to show up at this particular spot overlooking the harbor. Um, 
So you see, you see that going on. Um, see, see that going on in Bunk. Is, the funny part about that scene was Bunk. Now, McNulty just has, has nothing on as far as no life jacket or nothing. He's, he's chilling. Bunk comes on the boat with this big-ass life preserver. <laughs> like his 20-pound life preserver as if he's going to, as if he's going to drown. Um, that was funny, the funny part about that, uh, that scene. Then you see Kima and Russell discussing the balancing uh, kids and work. And it, it was clear, it was evident what was going on in that scene. Kima is trying to get a sense of what it's going to be like to be a parent, to be a parent and a cop. Um, so that I found that exchange interesting uh, for that particular scene. What were your thoughts on the Kima Russell exchange? Yeah, yeah, I, I think you're you're right. You're right on with um, you know, again, we're we're seeing the the ramification of the decision for Kima to go back and be an active police officer. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the final final part of Ziggy Landsman. Um, Landsman asked Ziggy if he wanted to make a phone call before he's taken away. Uh, Ziggy does not take him up on that offer um, to make a call. Um, so they just so they, they um, take him away. Then you have uh, the detail, the FBI, um, the detail, the FBI, and the Greek. So the Greeks, um, Mole, or with Agent Kutras, sees the information about Double G and then makes it, and then we see him make a call. Uh, we'll see how that plays out. That's a, that's a clear setup. We'll see how that plays out over the course of the episode. Horseface, Frank, and Nick. Um, so Frank, Nick tells Zig, Nick, Nick tells Frank about Ziggy shooting Double G and, and of course, a young guy. Um, he asked Nick, Nick, of course, is, is crying during this time. He's completely broken up, giving out this information. Then he asked Nick, basically, why was he around the Greek? Why was he around Double G? Was, you know, what's, where were you at? You're his cousin. And then Nick hit him with a, the, you know, hey, where were you at? You're his father. Yep. What were your thoughts on this scene? Yeah, great, great scene. I'm going to talk about this a little bit more at the end. The Greek and Asian Kutris, of course, you know, to your point last last episode, the only one that meets with the, the only one that meets with Asian Kutris is the Greek. They meet up. Uh, Asian Kutris tells them that the FBI is now involved with the case and that they have wiretaps going on. We'll see how that plays out. Yeah. Uh, Spiros receive. We get to Spiros. Spiros receives a message and tells the cook. Tell the the cook with who's inside the cook inside the deli, who we see all the time, uh, to get a message to Eton. To get the message to Eton with no and it says in that message to you know basically tell him get rid of phones, saying tells him to get the message with no phones with no phone use. Um, during the same scene, our two friends, Herc and Carver completely miss Spiros leaving the diner as they are arguing over some french fries. 
And, and during that exchange, so apparently they ordered, they both ordered fries. One of them, and you know, this happens all the time in restaurants, they forgot their fries. One of them forgot their fries. This happened, this happened to us before. Somebody gets their fries and we assume that, no, it was your fries that got forgotten. No, it was your fries that got forgotten. So then, so Herc puts his finger in the fries, gets, it digs his finger in the fries, takes a bite, takes a bite, and Carver says, yeah, go ahead, put your fat fingers, go ahead, put your fat fingers in the fries or with some to that extent. And then the only thing Herc gets out of that is the fact that you call me fat. So over the course of this exchange, they've missed Spiros, who's the, who's the number two, leaving leaving the diner where they were supposed to be, supposed to be watching. <laughs> what were your thoughts on this scene? Yeah, once once again, just them not really um, growing up, right? Like, like them being able to, um, what we were talking about, like acknowledge like the importance of their role and the importance of what they're doing in the investigation, and literally like as you were talking, the word that the words just popped into my mind was just like every little detail every little detail um and that's what hurt and carve at this point in time do not do well details they don't do details well at all no. i thought about when i was watching the scene i thought like i thought about which one was worse them missing spiros leaving or our buddy sammy missing uh avon and stringer in the, in the, the pit in season one. Oh yeah it was both were two two bad ones yep Kima and Russell uh, watch Eton leave the warehouse, and they let they let Lester know. Um, then we have a big scene. Valchek comes to the office, comes to the, the details office, and demands that Perez come demands that Perez come with him, because of course he's been he felt like he's been cut out the case. He felt like they're not putting enough emphasis on Frank Zabaka. Um, Daniels tries to calm him down, says, you know, you know, let's talk. Valchek, of course, is not trying to hear it and says, you know, you can you can do the case if you, how you want. You're not going to use my people to do it. He calls, he says, he, he pokes prayers a couple of times, says, you know, says, move it, shit bird, or I'll get you for uh, get you for insubordination. And the next thing you know, Prez punches them in the jaw. Freeman grabs Prez. And Daniels gives Prez this look of just disbelief where his eyes get, you know, just his eyes bulge and basically pop out of his head considering what's been, because he knows what's, you, know, you, hit, you, hit a, you hit a major, but that's a big deal. Um, Daniels, of course, at the end of the scene, asks Prez to see, to see him in his office. Prez puts his gun down. Daniels gives uh, Freeman a, a look of, you know, what the fuck, basically. And we see that scene come to an end. Um, what were your thoughts on this scene? Yeah. Um, yeah, poor Prez. Uh, so um, I was actually happy for Prez. I mean, uh, a, a, fa- a fantastic, a fantastic scene. I don't know about happy for him. Um, but I get what you, I do get what you mean, <laughs> seeing him stand up for himself. Yes. Um, yeah, I get that. Uh, um but uh, I, I think the thing that I was thinking the most um, when you were talking was uh, 
I wonder how, so most people think Prez Belusky is Ed Burns, co-creator, one of the significant writers right. yeah. on the show, um, is, uh, is, is his character because he's, Ed Burns was famously both a teacher and a cop and, and, um, and that will mirror Prez. And so um, I was thinking as I was looking at this, I was like, I wonder if, I wonder if they knew when Prez does this big mess up, like what his arc over entire seasons were going to be. And if it was closely related to like Ed Burns, like experience, like it was Ed Burns this much of a screw up. Um, because what I was thinking was, this is such a deep narrative that they're writing for press at this point in time. Like we saw season one, now we're season, we're seeing what's going on at the end of this season. And again, if that's, if the wire was doing this intentionally from day one, man, this show, just chess on top of chess on top of chess moves. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, part like, yeah. Parts of him is are definitely based on the Ed Burns character. I like, but like the wire, you know the wire as well as I do. They they take bits and pieces of of characters. They don't of composites of different characters. They don't. It's not necessarily unless unless you're talking about somebody like Bubbles. Or just a couple other characters. Not necessarily. They don't necessarily do one character and, and tell the entire story of one character and put them into the wire. It's probably it's, it's probably bits and bits and pieces of of a lot of characters. But um, I it certainly wouldn't surprise uh, surprise either one of us if they were thinking that far ahead in terms of where what direction they were going to take uh, presence character um, for the rest of the series. Um, yeah, I mean, I felt I felt good, and I felt I, I felt good with Perez for standing up for Valchek, but I also felt um, I was also like, damn, all this dude wanted to do was police work at this point. Like, just, I was, that's what I thought I was like, just, just leave this dude. He just wants to do, he enjoys doing his job. And Valchek, you were just basically fucking that rhythm up. So that's why, so that's why I felt bad for him for that standpoint, because he had finally, he had finally found a, his, his place. He finally found, you know, you know, found his niche, and then and then this happens. Um, so we go to Bunk and McNulty. Uh, they're on the boat, of course. Uh, they're taking pictures of Eton meeting with Spiros. Um, Spiros and Eton at this point are discussing the shooting of Double of, of Double G. Spiros tells Eton to go clean up the store, uh, take clean up the store, including the warehouse. Um, and at that point, at the end of the scene, we see them toss their phones. McNulty, of course, takes notes of it, takes takes note of it, and sees, and basically tells Bunk, "Did you just, you know, did you just see that?" Um, so we see that the uh, you know the Greeks, you know, of course, have been tipped off by the uh, by the mole, and that they are starting that they are starting to uh, change it up. What were your thoughts? Yeah. <laughs> The Greeks are a far superior organization. Are was my thoughts like they they have 
everything well uh, placed so that even in the worst case scenarios, they come out on top. Yeah, yeah. Like they, and even going back to the last two episodes, we go back to the McNulty episode when he went undercover, and even the last episode, every time that they've had to deal with some type of like something that's come in their way or something that they've had to deal with, they've dealt with it basically calmly and without panic. Now, you know, certainly doesn't help, doesn't hurt to have an FBI informant, but you know, that's, you know, that's just how, you know, that's just how they move. But they, you can part tell that's part of, you know, that's part of the plan. That's, that's part of the, that is part of their culture as far as the culture of, of, of their organization, that they had that type of reach. They had those type of connections. So yeah, they move, they don't, they don't panic at all uh, when something comes up. And then it seems like they have a plan for every situation. Like it doesn't like immediately, like, yeah, we'll go clean up the store. Um, yeah, go clean up the store and, and make sure you get rid of, you know, get rid of some, the, the evidence and what have you. So uh, you have Hurricane Carver, watch as Nick goes into the Greek deli. Now, Nick has been in this Greek, Nick Sabaka has been in this Greek deli, of course, numerous times. He goes into the deli and the cook, he asks the cook about the Greek, he has a cook about Spiros. And the cook basically looks at him as he, like he'd never seen him before. He's like, who's Spiros? Who's the Greek? Like, I don't know what you're talking about. So he doesn't give up. He gets nothing from that cook. And of course, this is the Greek. The Greeks have already, you know, have already made that move as far as changing things up, as far as um, changing things up. And I think also, also wonder too, because the cook knows who Nick is, they tell him like, look, even if even so, even if Nick comes in, don't say anything to anybody. So I, I was I was wondering about that. What were your thoughts on this scene? Yeah. Um, again, like it's it's the the when the Greek said, I think last episode or the episode before that, when he's when he's like, no, it was, it was last episode when he's talking to Frank. He's like, no, we're nobody's in this for love, and so like, like all that BS about you know it's about the union and this and everything like that. It's like okay, well, this is for the Greeks a cold-blooded business relationship, and now it's time to forget you exist. <laughs> so here you go, and it's got to be that easy. It's got to be that simple. It's gotta be. Otherwise, the consequences look different. And so again, the Greek organization is the superior organization of anything so far on this show. So you have um, the detail the FBI are talking, of course, talking about the, uh, what happened with Prez and, and uh, Valchek. Then they see that the Greeks are changing things up uh, then they discuss how to trace a text message because when in the in the scene where Spiros threw away his cell phone, threw away those phones, he also sent a message. He sent a text message. Um, so that's where McNulty got that I you know got you know got that idea or got that had that question about how to how to uh, trace a uh, text message. Uh, quick scene, but what were your thoughts on this scene? 
I, I just love that they were just beginning to figure out what text messages are. Yep. That's, that's exactly <laughs> where, where everybody was. Oh, at. man, that made me feel so old. Yep. I feel, yeah. Yep. Yep. Yeah, I just love it. I loved it. I loved it. I loved every moment of it. Yep. Great. Great scene. Um, Brother Muzo and Lamar. Uh, now, <laughs> they're just, Brother Muzo and Lamar are sitting on the park bench in the towers, just chilling. Uh, he tells Lamar, you forgot, you forgot my Harper's, you forgot my, my other magazines about the Atlantic. He says, Every week I tell you the same shit, but you managed to forget it. <laughs> but you managed to forget it. It's like next time go to the store, that tomorrow go to the store and get and get my Harpers. Um, and then he says, you know what the most dangerous thing in America is? A nigga with a library card. <laughs> and then Bodie, Bodie and a, another uh, Barstow worker, a soldier are looking on. And um, he says to Bodie, Bodie says, that's real muscle right there. They, they said, the dude told them that we haven't seen Eastside since. And Bodie says, yeah, that's that's real muscle. And then Bodie, you know, Bodie says, but what happens when we run out of the good stuff? And then the guy says, um, the guy says, well, if Bodie, if uh, Stringer wanted Eastside, if Stringer wanted Eastside uh, with us, or wanted Eastside in the towers, then why, does, why did this dude run him off? <laughs> So that's how that particular scene ended. Um, what were your thoughts? And in scene was my thought. That was that was it. And my thought was how, how many years I have missed that. He he asked the question that should have sparked my thinking about Stringer so long ago because it's right there. It's right there in what he said. It's right there what he said. It was, it was right it's, there. It's like, that was my, that was my, that was just like, he asked the question. That's the question. That's the question right there. Yeah. yeah. If Stringer, if Stringer wanted this to happen, why is Avon doing this? Yeah. If Avon wanted this to happen, why did Stringer do that? Okay. That's the, that's the essential question right there. Uh, and it's been there, right, right all along. They put it right there. As right in front of her face, right yeah. in front of just, yeah. just had, just wasn't, just wasn't there. Um, yeah. Anyways, fantastic. No, fantastic. no, no, it was so good, so good. Yeah. The, uh, so, yeah. I, I just thinking about Lamar with Brother Muzon. I guess. You know, I mean, I was, I was really thinking about his character. Um. I guess they had to balance that out. Having somebody as brilliant as Muzon, they had to balance somebody, somebody with him who was polar opposite of inept. I guess because I was trying to think about like why would a brother Muzon even want to be around this dude? Like, what purpose does he really serve for brother Muzon? You're asking me that question? No, I was no. I'm not. I don't expect you to answer, but I just thought about like it really hit me just now. Just thinking about even watching this episode, Muzon being as detailed and as organized as he is, and as disciplined as he is, and then you have this this dude who can't even 
get a magazine, get the right magazines from a store. And I'm like, why was, why was, was I'm, I, I'm not even asking questions. I'm just asking, talking out loud. Like, why was this dude even around who was on? Like, so, you know. I guess they had to balance Muzon's brilliance out with this with this dude who you know just was the polar opposite. Um, the details, Daniel and McNulty. Um, you see McNulty giving them coordinates of where Spiros was at earlier when they were um, when 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 Balkan and McNulty was were looking at Spiros and Eton speak. They go to a wireless provider. They see where Spiros. They see where what Spiros has been texting and then uh, they see they see that the messages are um, are in Greek. Now a lot going on in this short scene that foreshadows and I didn't realize this that foreshadows some things that we're gonna see in season three as far as technology. What were your thoughts on this quick scene? That was gonna be my exact point. I I, I appreciate this scene because it acknowledges that they know that there's existing technology that's coming up that they're going to have to deal with. Like they're not, they're not going to pretend that, yeah, we had to go from beepers to these burners and now, you know, to burn to people create self. Like that, like we of course were very much alive during this point in time, and we're we're very much in the time and space to be watching how quickly technology was moving at this point in time, particularly right. around phones and everything like that, and, and how people were were connecting and contacting each other. And so, yeah, I appreciated the scene for acknowledging, yeah, we know, we know there's existing stuff that is, by the time we even get this season out, is going to be old. We know it's coming. So we know we're going we're gonna to have to acknowledge it and deal with it in exactly what you said. They do deal with that in coming uh, seasons. So you have Nick and Prissy. Now, I'll give you a little backstory on Prissy. Let's see, because she this is the first time we saw her character. Prissy was the girl who Ziggy used to date and the one who Maui said that Ziggy had gotten, that, that, that Ziggy lied about, that Maui lied about that he had gotten pregnant. So this gets so Prissy and Nick are on a merry-go-round. They're both drunk. Um, looks like they were drinking some uh, some brandy or something. It was like a bottle or something. Some it was some type of whiskey. Uh, they're both drunk, drunk, telling Ziggy stories. And she was like, "Didn't he always do dumb shit?" <laughs> as they as they as they were crying and laughing at the same time. And um, they told a story about how he was supposed to go get this particular liquor. He came back. Then he came back with something that I that I hadn't heard in about 20 years. Boone's Farm. <laughs> Good old Boone's Farm. Um, so they're telling Ziggy stories. Um, and, you know, Nikki, of course, I'm sure is feeling guilty. Uh, it's, it's breaking down. They're both drunk, drinking. Uh, they're both drunk. And uh, a real, just some, you know, good at some great acting from Nick Sabaka, the guy who plays Nick Sabaka. I forgot his name, Pablo Schreiber. He did, I thought he did a tremendous job in this in, in this particular scene. I, or really throughout the course of the episode, uh, to be honest with you. But uh, this scene, you could tell, uh, you could tell how guilty he felt about 
even having Ziggy in some way involved in some of the things that Ziggy was involved with. Uh, what were your thoughts on this? Yeah. I mean, like, everything you said about, like, how uh, Nick Sabaka was feeling is absolutely true. Um, as you were talking, another thought came to my mind was just, like, you know, <clears throat> we have uh, two perpetual screw-ups in Presbylewski and in Ziggy. Ziggy. Yeah. Um, and you see how one is taken care of versus another, right? right. And um, and so um, so just as you was talking, that just like flashing into my into my head. But yeah, excellent scene, well acted. So we see the detail in Perlman. Uh, no, I just skipped it. We got Russell. Russell. So Russell is in is is in, is in uh, sleep. She gets a call in the middle of the night. From Kima letting her Kima letting her know that we're gonna do some raids. Russell of course rushes to get a uh, to get a babysitter for her kids. Um, we'll see how that plays out. That's a, this this is an absolute setup for uh, next episode. To be honest with you. So um, then we have uh, the detail in Perlman. Perlman says the judge uh, wants to know how much longer. Judge wants to know how much longer that this will uh, that this case will be. So they're starting to get you know starting to get some pressure from that standpoint uh, about you know not so much closing this case, but just want to know how much you know just want to know how the case is uh, progressing. Um, we go to Sergey and uh, some of the, some of the Greek soldiers, some of the muscle begin to clean out Double G store. They're taking files. Taking uh, you know, taking away files and other key evidence. And as that is going on, you see Freeman in detail typing up search warrants. And then you see uh, Sergey and Etan flush out the drugs in a in a drain as the cops are typing warrants. And that is how through that sequence of events, that is how the episode ends. Um yeah, yeah, that one of the rare endings that you saw very little to no dialogue. Yeah. Who is that this time around? Yeah. Yeah, opened up with very little dialogue, ended with very little dialogue. So, um, you had that. Um, you talked about themes uh, at the beginning, at the top, and I said, mentioned Prez and Ziggy. Um, and yeah, it. I mean, those two flipped or lost control for different reasons. They lost control for different reason for different reasons. And again, to your point, you see how much you see the difference between in terms of how they're taken care of. Like, even though Prez punches his, you know, father-in-law still has the support of the detail and Daniels. Ziggy seemingly is basically on his own. Like Ziggy, Ziggy basically seemingly was on his own, even though he has a father um, and he has family as well, a father and, a, you know, and his cousins and uncles and what have you. He seemingly was on his own throughout the course of the season. It's like, and I really, I really, cause I was, I, I was having a difficult time coming up with a theme 
for this episode in the beginning when I first watched it, or first rewatched it, but then, you know, but then when I started reading some stuff about these two particular characters, um, is a is a stark difference in terms of how these two characters were nurtured throughout the course of their respective character arcs. And I'm not even I'm not even I'm talking about up to this point. I'm not even talking about Prez through season five. Um, I'm talking about Prez from from the start from season one up to this point. Um, versus versus a Ziggy, it seems like you know. It seems like Ziggy had Prez course had a lot, a lot. Um, Prez could, of course could fuck up, and you know have very versus Ziggy having very little room for error in terms of his fuck ups. So, now I thought about that with these two with these two particular characters. Uh, what were your thoughts? Yeah, yeah, agreed. It's it's about how each of them were taken care of. And one was taken care of in a very specific way, and another one maybe not so much. Yeah, yeah, and, and you know, and one thing that's been we've talked about throughout the course of the series, from episode one basically, is individuals versus institutions. And you think about the institution that you think about the institution. That uh, that is that 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 supports Prez versus the institution that's falling apart within uh, Ziggy in terms of the union because the union's done the union's falling apart the checkers that they're they're on their way out so they, I think that was I think that you know that was very intentional showing showing us how protected Prez is by his institution. Versus Ziggy's really, really not having anything to fall back on in, in terms of him, in terms of his. Yeah. MVP and um, yeah, you MVP. Yeah, you said your MVP and performance. Yeah, I had, I had, I had. Now, I you helped me change my mind as far as MVP because I initially had Prez as MVP, but. It was Ziggy. Ziggy gets both awards. He gets the the Chardine and MVP of this episode. This was a and this was a Ziggy laden episode. This without question is a Ziggy laden episode. So I so I had Ziggy as the MVP and um, also the winner of the Chardine award. Who did you have? Did you have Ziggy the Chardine award too? No, nah, um, I actually had um, the uh, Nick Sabaka, Frank Sabaka scene. Um, so I had them split nice. the yeah. Chardin yeah. award. Um, yeah. Fantastic scene. Yeah. No, that that was no, that, that definitely was a powerful scene. Like, yeah. I mean, that, I mean, that just shows you how just blind Frank Sabaka was. Like. All the shit happening with Ziggy was happening right under his nose, basically. Yep. He yep. Saw, yeah. Yeah. So yeah, no, I, I definitely could. You could definitely go 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 that route with those with that particular with that particular award. That's going to wrap it up for this edition of the Wire Remix. Uh, big episode next week. Uh, that that one, uh, Bad Dreams, has a major 
major episode. Uh, certainly, you've got a lot to talk about with that episode in terms of um, what in terms of what transpires um, with the docs and, and with the details. Well, a couple, I, I, yeah. So that'll be a major episode, and we'll flush out more of you know the Muzon Stringer Prop Joe Omar dynamic for sure. Because there'll be a that's going to be a, a major scene in that. Uh, in that particular episode, and, and then, then again, that's a it, you thought this episode was explosive. The episode next week will be extremely explosive, to say the least. Yeah. Thanks to Rob Sapp, man. Thanks for joining joining me. Uh, All right, I will see you. Yep, you too, man. I'll see you next time. It's going to wrap it up for this latest edition of the Real Deal podcast. Of course, this podcast will be up. Uh, before the night is over uh, on YouTube, uh, Stitcher, Blog Talk Radio, and anywhere you can find a anywhere you can find a podcast or on any podcasting platform. I'm out. <laughs>